the average household in the United States spends about 22.5% of their net income on childcare fees. So if you take a look at what Europe is doing in the EU, 0.7% is spent on average. More of it is really allocated towards pre-primary education. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, we're joined by Joyce Chang, who's the chair of global research for J.P. Morgan's Corporate and Investment Bank. Joyce's team publishes an annual research report on gender balance around the world. In this episode, we'll talk about their findings and what can be done to ensure that women can recover from the pandemic. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here with you, Sam. Let's start out with your role at JPMorgan Chase. Would love for you to tell our listeners what it is that you do. Well, I have been a researcher on Wall Street for 32 years, and I ran the whole department, but I moved to chair of global research in 2019. And I'm very proud of J.P. Morgan's research team. We're the number one research house this year. We have many Hall of Famers who are our top research team across all sectors and all asset classes. And so what we do um, as chair of research and strategic research is I do research on a wide range of topics where the big focus is themes that we view as paradigm shifts that are really changing the way the world will operate. So ESG, environmental social governance issues, stakeholder capitalism are at the heart of that. Looking at the impact of COVID-19, you know, climate change, gender balance, which we're going to talk about, geopolitical relationships between the U.S. and China, the way that finance is transforming in digital finance, alternative currencies like Bitcoin, blockchain, and also just looking at some of the risks that are lie ahead. It could be regulatory risk, it could be political risk, it could be event risk, natural disaster risk. You know, we have a very strong dialogue with policymakers, also senior client relationships, and I kind of view a chair like um, in a university department, you try to set the tone and really let the top talent shine and amplify their voices and the diversity of those voices. How did the things that you've covered through the years, through your long career, how did those things change? Were you generally covering similar things or did you really get to move around in terms of the topics that you covered? Well, so I'm one of those people who ended up on Wall Street by accident. You know, I started in emerging markets way before they were even called emerging markets. They were called LDC, less developed country. You know, they were called Global South. People, you know, ask me even what what does that actually mean or third world? And so when I started, there wasn't even a private sector in this. All of these countries had defaulted on their commercial bank loans. The countries were not paying their debt. It was hyperinflation. And I was in graduate school and nobody had ever really analyzed this as an opportunity to invest in. So they hired a graduate student. And that was me at the, that point to really, you know, called grad school and said, who knows something about the third world? And they're like, well, really the best person and the only person we have who actually looks at that is Joyce. And it then became an asset class. And, it, you know, I have spent a lot of my career looking at crises. And every crisis kind of has a lot of the same anatomy. A lot of it starts in the financial sector. You, know, It hits the broader economy. It requires a bailout package. So all of that experience in looking at emerging markets bailouts, I started looking at all of the bailouts 
the U.S. economy, the Eurozone crisis, and sort of ended up then managing all of research. And what I love about the chair role is it really it brings me back to a policy focus. It allows me to work on so many of the development issues. I went to public policy school that I just mm. cared so much about. A lot of the organizations that I work with outside of J.P. Morgan and within J.P. Morgan that focus on these issues. Yeah. You know, it sounds like for someone who's interested in public policy, economics, finance, current events, that this is such a wonderful career to pursue because you're you're able to learn all these things all the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's a wonderful research team. The thing about a lot of researchers is some of us really didn't plan on being on Wall Street. So you have a really eclectic mix, you know, people who are macroeconomists who worked at the IMF, you know, former professors, people who got PhDs and astrophysics who have all come together. And I think that's one thing to really celebrate about what we have at J.P. Morgan, just that diversity of people, voices and views. I love that. So let's talk about the work that you're just releasing. Uh, Global Research is putting out the 2021 edition of the Gender Balance Report. And this report for a number of years now has really talked about uh, women's positions in business, in politics, in other sectors. And I love that you take a really global approach with this report. So let's talk about the top line findings for this year. It's been such a difficult year and we know it's been so hard for women. So I'd love to hear what are the things you found? Well, we are very proud of the fact that we are global. We have more than 25 women mostly and some men who contributed to this report from Asia, from Latin America, from the Middle East, from Europe um, and the United States. So let me go through the top five findings. So we have seen that female participation in the labor force is suffering historic setbacks as a result of COVID-19. We're actually at a 33-year low in the United States, um, the lowest since 1988, as women have lost jobs that are concentrated in the services sector. They've also borne greater responsibility for childcare. And just to give you an idea of these numbers, so you have that 2.3 million women have lost jobs, 1.8 million men. But this was something that you could really trace to the schooling patterns, and you could see this as a school year started that in the month of September, four times as many women left their jobs as men. So some real setbacks after having a period where female labor force participation really returned to nearly what the peak was, was just like within, you know, very, very close to where the peak levels were. So that's the first thing. But the second thing just related to that is that the gender wage gap is at best stagnating and really is at risk of widening because of where the job losses have been concentrated. And, you know, in the United States over the last decade, the gender pay gap has been around 17 and a half percent, and it really hasn't changed much. It hasn't improved that much. We saw more improvements in the United Kingdom and Europe, where the pay gap is 16 percent in the UK, 15 percent in Europe, but even there, it stagnated this past year. But what we're really worried about is the longer-term scarring from all of this. It's harder to recover jobs in the services sector. And if you look at a recent report that was put out by the NASA, National Bureau for Economic Research, it estimates that the pandemic could result in a widening of the U.S. Um, gender earnings gap by as much as five percentage points. And, and tr- typically after a traditional recession, when um, employment recovers, you actually have it narrow by 2%. Mm. So that's a huge drop, a historic drop in female participation in the labor force, um, a gender wage gap that looks more troubling. But then related to that is Uh, the racial inequity in this. We see that racial inequity is rising, not just the gender inequality, 
um, Black women who had benefited from some of the largest employment gains from 2015 to 2019, because you had such a strong labor market that pulled in new workers, have experienced the most significant setbacks. And this is some very good work that has been done by um, the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. Um, they find that Black and Latinx women earn just 58 and 59 cents on the dollar compared to white men. And if you look at what happened in the um, unemployment rates, the Black female participation rate dropped by about almost six and a half percentage points from February to September 2020. That was a far greater decline than what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. You know, so there's just lasting you know damage that's off of that, and uh, and I think that you know so that's just the participation rate, the inequality. But let's look at senior leadership and what happened in the C-suite and also at the board level. We've continued to see some improvement for women on boards, but. It slowed this year after several years of progress, states putting in specific mandates like California. So female representation on U.S. corporate boards has made positive gains. Women now hold about 22.6% of the seats, 20.4% in 2019. But where we've really seen little change is at the C-suite level. Female representation in the C-suite level um, is little change. It's still less than 5%, 4.8% of CEO seats. Um, it was 4.3% in 2019, when you look at the way that we track this uh, globally. So, you know, it, it has been a pandemic that has hit women disproportionately. Are, are there any silver linings here? Well, I think one of the silver linings is just far greater awareness of the issues. There is a rise in stakeholder capitalism. There is a focus um, on getting women in public leadership positions in the developed markets. Mm. And so we have seen, you know, the Biden administration, it's a record number of female appointments to the cabinet. Uh, the Congress now is 27% female. So, you know, women on boards is only at 22.6%. Mm. So it was another year where this election brought a record number of women into the Congress after a record year at the midterm elections. Right. So that's the silver lining, you know, as far as the big takeaways from the report. And do you see globally similar patterns when it comes to women in the C-suite and at boards? Well, emerging markets is is actually in a far worse place. So you have that overall globally, women in the labor force are you know 47% of the labor force. That's about 30% in emerging markets. And so in emerging markets, you have, have had an even wider disparity mm. because um, you know in the emerging markets countries, the lower income countries, you just can't do the teleworking. So taking a look at the United States, 54% of women working in social sectors cannot telework. So that's still more than half of the women, which is why women are affected disproportionately. That is really unbelievable. And just all the ways you're explaining it now, you know, when you started out talking about women losing uh, representation, you know, we're going back 30 years or so in the U.S., that's just really astonishing. What do you see as those policies that could really help women get back in, recover some of these um, wage gap issues and not take 10 years to do that? Well, I think a, a really important thing and one reason to point out J.P. Morgan's policies is, I mean, you need to have you know paid leave and parental leave. Um, employer paid leave for new parents is currently available to just 17% of private sector workers. 
So paid leave, parental leave is important. And, you know, J.P. Morgan has continued to change that policy, but, but more broadly, you know, support for early childhood care and education, you know, in the European countries, there's a lot of subsidies for this as well. And when we look at the report that McKinsey puts out every year, um, Women in the Workplace, their survey found that one out of every four women indicated that they are considering taking a leave of absence reducing their hours or moving to part-time or switching to a less demanding job. You know, I think that, that, that there are things that need to be done to be um, put into place that are gender responsive policies. There are some real discrepancies between how Europe, which is sort of further ahead on the curve, approaches this compared to the United States. And you can see this even in just overall um, spending initiatives. So you know, it stands out in particular on, you know, paid leave, parental leave. Um, you know, nothing is you know, guaranteed for paternity leave in the United States. And if you look at the European Union as an example, the average paid leave for men is 6.3 weeks. Now yeah. we've moved to a policy that actually comes very close to that. And, um, you know, it's, but, but that's, you know, JP Morgan is really much more the exception than the rule since only 17% begin with even offer employer paid leave to new parents. Right. Right. But that is true. We are looking at it as parental leave. It's not maternal leave. It's really for both parents, which is a very big deal. And we're encouraging more men in the organization to take it and really celebrating those who do, which is super important. You know, does anything in here surprise you, just given the fact that women are represented in so many of these sectors, the lower wage sectors, and were hit so hard? Does it surprise you to see what we've been seeing? I am surprised um, in looking at this crisis about how rapidly everything happened. You know, how you how quickly we got to 33 years um, of, of a setback and just the speed of this crisis was without precedent. So even just talking about this from a market's perspective, from peak to trough for the S&P 500 was 14 days. So 33 years of decline in labor force um, participation rate to 33 years, that happened um, very quickly. And there's a hope that things will bounce back quickly as well, that maybe will we see something more V-shaped? We've seen that in the economy. The problem is that services jobs are just uh, stickier. They're they're harder to, they're, they're harder to, um, you'll come back as quickly. So I think that um, what has surprised me, whether it is looking at what's happened to women or what's looking at the financial markets was just that COVID-19 was an accelerant. You know, there were certain trends that were in play but they were just amplified. And it has really pointed to the need to you know, come up with gender-based policies that can make a difference. Um, it's made companies think very differently about how they have to plan um, for a crisis and, and really move away from just shareholder primacy to stakeholder primacy, what they have in place for their employees, all of the work from home plans. You know, as you and I are talking, we're getting new jobs data for the month of February. And it showed that there were a lot of jobs, at least in the United States, that came back in the restaurant sector. But there's still wage issues there because many of those jobs are not full-time jobs. So when you take a look at that, you see the good news on the job side, but it does not necessarily translate into a full income for so many people. How, what are we supposed to make of this? Is this a really positive sign? A lot of people say, well, look, you know, women are getting back these jobs, but are they regular or irregular jobs? And does that actually increase their vulnerability? Um, and so some of the flexibility also comes with irregular em employment that's not guaranteed. And that's kept women in a more vulnerable economic position. So I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, commonalities we see across the themes. 
that are coming across um, different parts of the world, but the jobs coming back, there is a question on just uh, are those jobs that are going to sort of afford the same type of security as we see, um, as, as we would, that we would want to see to come out of this crisis. So you mentioned cultural beliefs really driving female participation in the market, possibly even the wage gap. Are there countries you look at around the world that are really held as a gold standard for a very positive cultural belief for women, you know, having the right to be in the workforce and enabling them to be as professional and successful as they can be? Well, when you look at almost any metric, the Scandinavian countries stand out. Um, and people always come up with these examples, like even like uh, you could look at something like women in central banks, oh, Scandinavia looks good. You know, women in the workforce, women in pension funds, women um, on boards, and everybody points to Scandinavia. So that's um, one that does stand out, as does Iceland. But, you know, when you look at some of the larger economies, uh, you know, it, it, you know, you don't get a similar picture. And, and I think that's because Europe has, you know, mandated, you know, put in five-year plans, um, you know, mandated the women on the boards, does have sort of gender-based um, policies and budgeting. Um, that have taken real priority. And when you look at the leadership in Europe, I, you still have that Angela Merkel is the de facto leader of Europe, but you've got Christine Lagarde um, at the central bank. The European um, commission president is female. You have the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the first um, female from Nigeria has you know, come in to run that organization as well. So I think Europe has for quite a while been you know further ahead on that, but then within you know, looking at Europe, I mean, the Scandinavian countries have been the standout for quite a long time. And they're the ones that often have very good childcare policies and the parental the, the leave child, policies. The parental leave policies, the childcare policies, um, sort of a, a sort of a rules-based approach to it. Um, and um, and also you just, they, they've been working on this for quite a while. So they have a track record of leadership. So when you look at the comparisons to women in the political sector versus a corporate sector, why do you think women seem to be doing better in politics than in business, at least in some countries like the U.S.? Well, I think that you you have had um, a growing awareness that really started after Hillary Clinton um, was defeated, like a record number of women started running for office. And so the midterm election it was marked by um, Democratic gains. This last election was marked by Republican gains all on the House side. You haven't had as much movement on the Senate side, but you had a record number of women running for office. And some of that was in response to you know, Hillary Clinton's defeat. Some of it was in response to Trump. There was a whole range of reasons. And one can't say it was just Democratic or Republican because Republicans made more gains. So that's a big change, just the number of women who've run for office. But I think you know Biden has been explicit during his campaign that he really does want to achieve 50-50 parity. And um, he has gone you know far further than o- Obama and certainly than Trump um, or any previous president. And so if you look at just the appointments that he has put through, you've got 11 cabinet appointments. That's like you know you know more than 35 percent of the cabinet, and it's a, a number that is you know nearly 10 percentage points more than what Obama did, you know, probably more than double what, you know, Trump had in place as far as just female leadership. The other thing that Biden has done is establish a gender policy council where he really has said, I want to look at the issues that impact women across economic security, healthcare policy, 
educational policy. And if you take a look at the Build Back Better, you know, plan, it does have childcare sort of at the forefront, you know, in the in in the proposals as well. You know, looking at the US, taking a look at public early childhood care and education, only 0.3% of GDP is spent, you know, on public early childhood care and education, and 0% is allocated to childcare. So the average household in the United States spends about 22 and a half percent of their net income on child care fees. So if you take a look at what Europe is doing in the EU, 0.7% compared to 0.3% is um, spent on average on public early childhood care and education. And more of it is really allocated towards pre-primary education, early childhood. Um, and the average household there spends 10.7% of their net income, so less than half of what the U.S. does, in That's addition to having better parental leave policies to begin with as well, where since only 17% of the private sector here even offers you know, that kind of paid leave. Yeah, it is a really stark difference. It obviously matters, as you see all the net results of this on the work front. Um, and we can only hope that the momentum that we're seeing with childcare in the U.S. really keeps going, you know, and that's the supports um, not only for parents, but also childcare providers, both the employees of these businesses and the businesses themselves, as we know, which really ran into a lot of hardship over the last year. So we really look forward to that. You know, I want to change gears. I want to ask you about one other topic um, in your work. This was so interesting. The fact that women are disproportionately affected by climate change. Can you talk about that? What, what did you find there? Well, this is, you know, I'm an emerging markets specialist by background. This is really particularly true in emerging markets. I'm going to share some of the data and the numbers with you because it does affect the U.S. as well. So natural disasters um, inflict higher fatality rates on women compared to men. And a lot of this is you know, inadequate access to information or early warnings, um, limited access to resources that can build up you know, more resilient systems. But a lot of it is societal. It's cultural. It's religious norms that women are just much more likely to be at home taking care of others when disasters hit. So actually escaping a disaster is much more challenging, but it's not just an emerging markets phenomenon. I do wanna share some of the data points because it's really just um, you know quite alarming. So let's just take an example like the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Women accounted for 70 to 80% of the deaths. They didn't know how to swim. They didn't acquire life-saving skills which are vital during a flood or during a tsunami. But let's just take a look at the United States. Um, during Hurricane Harvey in 2017, many women chose not to evacuate because being the caregiver complicates the decision to leave. Um, and um, so we saw that they were disproportionately you know, impacted because of that. Um, if we take a look at Hurricane Katrina, women who were displaced to trailer parks in the wake of Hurricane Katrina experienced a rape rate that was 54 times higher than the baseline Mississippi level. Wow. So some of this is just the, the, the role that women have as caregivers, the skills that they acquire. So we have found that women are disproportionately affected by climate change. And it's not just emerging markets countries, although it's more prevalent there because of some of the cultural and religious norms. Obviously, COVID has had such a huge impact on jobs across the country for men and women in, in many sectors, as we've discussed. But the market response feels almost so detached from that. Obviously, we saw a lot of market volatility last spring, and we had many days uh, of losses. But when you look where we are now, it almost 
it almost seems unbelievable that we've just been through this past year, given the levels where the markets are in general. How do you interpret that? You know, what are investors saying in the market in terms of their, I guess, optimism that we'll get through COVID? Well, this is what we've seen really all year is this disconnect between the real economy um, and the financial markets. But, you know, frankly, since the Biden administration, um, the real economy is picking up a lot because of the size of the stimulus. And just to walk um, through some of the numbers that we're forecasting at J.P. Morgan from our global economics group. So we now think that U.S. nominal GDP growth is going to average 7% growth over this year and next year, which is actually the strongest levels that we've seen since the early 1980s. So we are looking at second quarter growth, 9.5%, 8.3% in the third quarter of the year because of the size of the stimulus. We think that U.S. unemployment will decline to 4.5% by year end and 4% in 2022. And we are forecasting that you have 675,000 jobs created per month. That's 8 million um, jobs next year bringing the unemployment rate down to four and a half percent by year end and then to four percent in 2022. But what you have is a labor force participation rate, which had fell more disproportionately for women. That still is about half a percentage point below pre-pandemic levels. And so the question really is, what's the inequality um, going to be in that? And you know, we've seen in the numbers just that, um, I mean, look, if you look at like the December payroll numbers had 140,000 job losses, but 156,000 more women and then 16,000 men actually gained jobs. We're seeing more job gains as all of the stimulus comes into place. We have a COVID recovery that's underway and we do see unemployment levels coming down. So this is why you know the debate is on what the lasting damage will be. Was the stimulus enough to get us back to a point where jobs will recover? So we have to keep looking at these numbers. We're going to obviously hope there are more jobs created, but to your point, if the jobs don't ever come back, in these sectors where women were predominantly working, there's the problem that there just won't be the jobs for them to come back to. So this raises the issue of reskilling, which many people, governments, companies have talked about for a long time, but it really feels like the reskilling need is more critical than ever, that we're going to have to really tackle this as a society very quickly if we want to move people into new jobs. You know, I, you know, that's the, and that's why um, emerging markets countries, particularly some of the poorer countries, are going to be, be left behind. So I think, yes, for high income countries, that's very much the story. How much of this can be retooled? And for some of the things that were silver linings of this crisis, the greater flexibility to work from home, to not have the commute, to um, be able to sort of try to multitask and take care of your family. You know, there are some benefits that, um, you know, come about. And when, you know, I talk to women around the first firm, you know, they talk about just sort of how complicated it is, you know, that they still have the childcare burden, burdens of caring for their parents as well, but still the ability to do this from home does give them that flexibility. So some things that are coming out of this uh, crisis, as far as the way that we work, I think are going to stay and, and help women, but there's still real disparities depending on what income level you're at. Right. And, and for low income, it, they just don't have this optionality. 
So for those women who were able to retain their jobs during this crisis, we're fortunate to do that. As you mentioned, you know, the remote piece became very critical. And this is, I think, the lasting question is, how will we take flexibility and remote work into the future? What good things will we take with it? Where might we adjust and go back uh, to some in-office hours? But for women who did retain their jobs to work remotely, I think you and I have seen, we talk about this often, that there's just this underlying stress and anxiety that is gets masked sometimes. They might be working, but they're really dealing with a lot still at home. Yeah, I mean, Sam, it feels like, you know, the two of us have talked about it, it feels like it is 24 seven now. I mean, it feels like people have lost track of when work stops and or when the weekend starts. And I think if you're doing both and they're both really just jobs that take so much of you, you know, I find like I'm trying to fit things in. It doesn't kind of matter what hour or day of the week it is because, you know, you kind of had to deal with things as they came in. And I talk to a lot of women who feel that way, particularly those who have younger children. And so I think that um, it's it's created a new kind of stress and focus on wellness and, um, you know, just even the kinds of things that J.P. Morgan has, you know, had to put into place. Right, right. Well, what do you think some of those differences have been over the years? You know, when you started to now, how much more of a female friendly environment are we in? Well, I, I think it's easy to talk about everything that needs to be fixed, but I think one has to also acknowledge what has changed. So even just the whole concept, um, you know, I grew up in the markets business of men having paternity leave was not there at all as a concept. I mean, you know, most men I knew took one or two days off of work. And if it was more than two days, it was considered strange. And it used to be something they would boast about and we took a day off. And I I think so. I think one of the big changes is the parental leave policy. I think the other thing is just um, having facilities available, like for nursing mothers. Like when when my two children are college age now, that was not in place either. There was no lactation room back then. No, 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 it, it really wasn't. And, and I, so I think that those are, are really big changes. And, um, you know, there's still a lot more that needs to change. I mean, we still struggle with, you know, getting women to senior levels and retaining them at senior levels and getting them to senior levels, even though we're, we've made just tremendous progress in starting at 50-50. So you work in a very intensive part of the business in terms of the markets moving all the time, crises coming up, you're interacting with clients, which in the past, before COVID, we always wanted to visit in person. Do you think that you know the nature of the work can still adapt going forward to be more flexible, to be a little more remote, even when it's safe enough to go back to work? Or do you think in your world, people will want to be back in person? Well, I think people will want a hybrid. I I think this sort of fly around the world for one meeting, I think that's over. It's going to be a hybrid model coming back in. And I think that's going to be true for work as well. That, you know, you want people back in the office, but not necessarily five days a week. And, you know, JP Morgan's announced that even like its real estate plans are are, are shifting because of this. So I think those are some permanent shifts that are, um, you know, are, 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 good and better and lasting. And for people in financial services, those shifts can happen. It's just there's so many sectors of the economy um, that, you know, are um, disproportionately affecting women where that really isn't an option. But for the travel, you know, I, you know, I was doing an event recently for Latin America and they're like, wow, Joyce, this is like the fifth event we've had you on this year. And if in the old world, you might've come here once a year, but now we've done you know, all of these different things together because the Zoom has become the norm. So, you know, there's always that challenge, I think, of how do we, um, you know, replicate that experience of sitting next to each other? 
um, in this environment and, and keep that connectivity and how do we keep innovation you know, going as well? All of these things are challenges, but some of the benefits are you know, for a global firm like JP Morgan, you know, it's been very possible to keep that global connectivity because of technology. And um, you can also just see, you know, the parts of the world that are moving faster than others. But I'm finding that, um, you know, what everybody does miss, though, is that in-person contact and connectivity. So you want to get the right balance. And I think that's where the focus is going to be. It's not going to be back to what it was before. It's so interesting you say that about the global travel. I think, You're so right. We've cut back all of our travel, so we're not in person with global colleagues anymore, but we see them all the time on Zooms, on virtual events. I think we've made a real effort to be global in everything we do because we can, because all of these things can be shared virtually. So I think you're right. In a way, we have had a lot more global interaction, even though it hasn't been in person. No, definitely. And I think everybody was really hesitant about that. And then it's, you know, it's like when we talk about the speed of the crises, it's kind of amazing how quickly everything adapted, you know, how quickly everything adapted to work from home, getting the technology up, you know, really um, replicating the experience of sitting next to each other and going back to business as usual. Right, right. So I'd love to talk about a partnership that's very close to both of our hearts, which is with Girls Inc., So we have a sponsorship with them in the United States. They are a large nonprofit serving girls really across the country in Canada, and they serve largely girls of color, and they focus on health, wellness, academics, and we in particular work together with them on the economic literacy program, financial literacy. So you've been very involved with Girls Inc. for some time on their board. And I just wanted to ask you, how did you come to work with the organization and why is it so important to you? Yeah, so I've been on the board of, of Girls Inc. for a long time. I started working with them even longer ago in the 1990s. It was what really appealed to me was reaching out to girls um, while they were still in high school, you know, making sure that they stayed on the path to go to college, to save for college. And I think what really makes Girls Inc. very special because it serves the most um, underserved parts of the population in this program with Chase, you know, they bring their mothers into the branch with them. They are, These girls are just disproportionately from um, you know, single parent households. But there were a couple of dads too who came because yes. I run come, uh, some of these workshops and it really is a learning experience for the parents and you know we organize it on the weekends so the parents can come and they come to the branches and they also you know learn how to you know kind of sign up for things that will make savings automatic. So the target over five years was to um, train 20,000 girls. You know, we want them to also be able to budget for fun things like a prom dress as well and to figure that out. We have also targeted this program in, you know, a number of different cities throughout the United States. I mean, it's not just, you know, the New York City area. I think what is great about the J.P. Morgan Chase program is the way that we've gotten our community involved for our young talent associates, VPs, but also what we're bringing to them is a way in which they can develop lifelong skills as savers who take control of their finances, take control of their lives, and that we've also included their parents. So that talking about finance is not as intimidating an experience. It is just part of you know normal existence. Um, you know that they really incorporate and automatically have put into place some 
strategies, um, you know, to um, make sure that the budgeting occurs almost on autopilot so that they are saving for the longer term. I love all of that too. And I think that benefits to the firm of having so many employees mentor girls, not just on finances, but on jobs and careers and what their futures could look like. That has been really inspiring, I think, to so many of us. So we're really pleased with that part of the partnership too. Well, I just want to say thank you, Joyce, for speaking with us today, for being such a great partner for me, for Women on the Move, and for all the work that you do to really showcase women and the progress we still need to make. I just want to say thank you. Well, Sam, I really just have to thank you because, you know, I've been involved with women's networks my whole career, but who could have thought we would ever make this impact in the community um, and really be able to take it outside and to um, you know, just impact so many lives during a crisis. And so, you know, I really love what we've done with Women on the Move, that we care so much about our own employees, but even more so that we have taken our strengths on financial literacy and brought it out into the community and brought it out early. Exactly. We're going to keep going. Thank you. I look forward to more work with you. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam. And great to um, have a chance really to talk about the work that we are doing to look at um, what needs to be done to achieve gender equality. This is an annual report that we put out every March and um, videos of the report are also available, but we're very proud to have 25 different researchers from all parts of the world um, who have contributed their thoughts and perspectives on this and all of their energy into tackling this issue. Thank you for joining today's conversation with Joyce Chang. Joyce is a terrific colleague and her work has provided us with a rich roadmap of how we can help women in their professional and personal lives. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.